You are very welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast in which I, Toby Haydock, get a special guest to nominate a story for me and to choose their favourite things about it. I then have to guess what those favourite things are. Well, hello, everybody. According to my schedule, I should be doing a different story right now, but I'm 47 years old and I can do what I blooming well want and i quite fancied watching inferno uh i was in an inferno mood and the beauty of doctor who is there's a story to suit whatever mood you're in and i'm in the mood for a bit of gritty season her suit season season seven lava fascist shenanigans now i know that this story has been set for me by, I always say this is done uh, by a friend of mine, but uh, in, in this case it's someone I've never met. We have conversed over the internet, uh, and he's been in Doctor Who. Now this thrills me, because there's a part of me that the idea that anybody that's been in Doctor Who um, would even agree to smile at me, let alone partake in something I'm doing, to give me the credibility of being a fellow human being. Still, even though I'm 47... Um, absolutely thrills me. Now, he got in touch after he'd sent his thing, saying, oh, I'm not sure I've done it right, um, because some of the other ones have been different, which means he's a listener and a viewer. Hello. Um, but, of course, I told him, uh, the way that this is done is that the guest has to take ownership, and they must appreciate Doctor Who and express their appreciation for the story that they've chosen, however they choose. Even if you're not 47, you can still do what you blooming well like. So uh, I don't know what to expect uh, from uh, my guest. Um, and I'm sure his fears are unfounded. So let's see uh, who he is and why he's chosen this particular story in general terms. And then we'll hear from him at the end of this particular instalment to find out his favourite thing about episode one. Hi, Toby. It's uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, for the multitudes out there who don't know me, my name's Jeremy Raddick, and I played Gareth in the Doctor Who TV movie. And for the past 25 years, uh, I've been uh, shamelessly exploiting that to get me into exciting predicaments like this. Um, and now it's, you know, it's brought me here uh, to my basement uh, to talk to you about Inferno. So uh, it's maybe the, uh, the John Pertwee story I've seen the most. Uh, I first saw it Ooh, a very long time ago when it came out on VHS and uh, actually probably around the time that I was filming the TV movie. So it's always held a special place in, in my heart uh, alongside Frontier in Space uh, because, uh, you know, I, that's what I was watching it around the time I was also making the movie. Oh, by the way, if you hear some odd noises in the background, I apologize. It's actually because there's like a team of scientists and, and they're doing some drilling in my backyard. I mean, I don't know what it's about. Apparently there's some sort of well, I think there's some kind of pockets of gas back there and they're, you know, drilling in. They're about to pierce the Earth's crust or something. I don't know. I didn't really pay attention. Anyway, so, Toby, while I pop out and see what they're getting up to, uh, why don't you see if you can figure out what my favorite thing about episode one is? I'll be back in a tick. I already love Jeremy. <laughs> I already did. Already did. He's been in Doc Two, and I hadn't realised he was a a fan when he did the show. Um, I suppose I must have realised that in my head because because uh, he's spoken at conventions and stuff. But um, I, I think I I hadn't put that together 
when I was thinking about this. What, did I think he'd become a fan afterwards? <laughs> well, maybe, why not? But I love that story then, that uh, he was watching Inferno and then going off to be in Doctor Who. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, the fact that being in Doctor Who is, is a dream that can come true for people uh, and has for many, I think, is a is a wonderful thing and wonderful thing about so many, you know, people who've grown up loving it who've had various involvements with it. I, it's a fair, it's, a, you know, that's an added level of joy aside from the fact that it's a TV show we can love and pour over the minutiae of. I love the fact that he's got a team of scientists in his back garden. <laughs> And I also love the fact that he's broken it up with captions so I know when one section has stopped so I can press pause because quite often when I do this, you know, uh, actually breaking up people's contributions, uh, it, it involves a lot of editing. So Jeremy is already in my good books. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Jeremy. Um, so that's an interesting introduction. So what that means is that we will hear from Jeremy at the end of the episode. But what we're going to do first is we're going to watch that episode. Uh, my partner made, <laughs> of those watching on video, my partner made that fellow. And look, he's got a Doc 2 scarf on. Um, uh, so uh, I normally set this up. Uh, regular viewers and listeners will know that I, myself and uh, remote controls, do not have the best relationship i'd got this all set up i'm a blooming professional and uh remote control had done its best to burrow to bore like a mole um uh down the back of the sofa but i have it now so if like me uh, i'm watching the dvd of this uh and the menu is not a series of tantalizing clips it's just a sort of bit from episode seven that actually almost cuts out halfway through a sentence that i've had on a loop uh, for a bit while I set this up. So um, it's a good job I'm not watching episode seven for a bit. Now then, everybody, um, shall we watch Inferno? Uh, I'm going to, and I'm going to press play all. So I'm going to press enter in three, two, one. And here we go. Now, I first encountered Inferno. I used to get bootleg um, VHSs from a shop in Wolverhampton. Uh, I think I've said this before. You took two tapes in. You got one back with episodes on it of varying quality. And after a while, because you got seven episodes, but you got about another 13 minutes after seven episodes, I asked Colin, the guy who did it, to to stick something on the end, uh, to you know, anything to fill out, you know, the remaining uh, 13 minutes. And so on the end of something, I forget what now... Uh, it's interesting that I forget what. I would have known this information back in the day. I got the first 10, 12 minutes of Inferno. Colin was very keen for me to have the seven episode as he kept telling me how brilliant Doctor and the Silurians was and it was his favourite story because I realised, and I, and I realised much later, that that's because I used to go and, uh, and request the orphaned episodes or mix and match, you know, four-parter and, uh, and the first three parts of a six-parter, then the back six parts and another four-parter which would involve lots of chopping and changing of tapes for him whereas just sticking a seven-parter on uh was much so i think this was part of his campaign to to get me to choose seven parties but uh even that 13 minutes it it, it showed me that it was 
you know, it's a sort of cut above. It's got, uh, well, it's, it's slightly disjointed because it starts with film uh, and it wasn't great quality because Inferno was for a while in black and white or existed in, um, uh, and it still exists. It's like, you know, the colour is, is is recovered from, uh, it's converted from NSTC, isn't it? Or it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't look as it would have done when broadcast. And obviously the, bootleg version had uh had had even more problems than uh this i mean this cleaned up version it doesn't have problems as such but it doesn't it doesn't look you can tell that the that the picture quality is not as it uh as as it should be and i think that does affect our appreciation of it in fact with inferno i think it slightly counts in its favor because it does make it look slightly more sort of filmic and, and unusual i think if this was as crisp uh, as as studio stuff is, I don't know. We might receive it slightly d- differently, as as crisp as uh, as as studio stuff that we have from from later stories, or maybe not. Who knows? But I I certainly uh, experience Inferno. I think in a slightly different way, a slightly removed way. It's perhaps more movie like because of this this uh, slight sheen it has from not being, um, yeah, studio work that looks like it's. Uh, you know, come come from uh, an English print, as it were. Um, the Doctor was singing La Donne Mobile, which is also sung by Private Tito, I think, in The Tenth Planet. It's from Rigoletto. Um, Christopher Benjamin as Sir Keith Gold, uh, I think is four years old here. Okay, but it's, it's an interesting casting because you, I, I, th- I would have thought you would go older, but it, but it works because what they've done is they've cast to character, which is this very gentle, benign, polite thing that Christopher Benjamin has, uh, and he does, he does have a certain civil servant air about him. Uh, and so it's a good piece of casting, but I, 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 I think a slightly unusual one. Uh, Olaf Pooley, I think, is magnificent as Professor Stallman. Um, Doctor Who has its fair share of sort of mad scientists, but I, I, I find him extremely believable. And I think this all comes from Douglas Camfield, um, who is the director of this who gives everything a realism and intensity. I love the fact that when Slocum, Walter Randall here, touches the green stuff, a little bit of smoke shoots out. That, uh, to me, is a sort of Camfield touch. It's not just enough to touch the green stuff. We have to have a little sizzle and a a shoot, just a little bit of attention to detail. Uh, And we get this sort of, we we, we get this this noise constantly in the background. And I think that, that sort of, that Krakatoa howling, as it were. Um, there's no incidental music in this. Well, there are just sort of stock or sounds, which is very interesting. And is it the last story without a musical score as such? I think it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, so that's a curious sort of throwback to the 60s where often stories had, um, you know, just library tracks or, in some cases, no incidental music at all. Uh, Walter Randall... Um, uh, he goes up and down with Doctor Who, really. Uh, he was a mate of John Pertwee. He was a mate of Douglas Camfield. I mean, he's in a lot of Camfield stuff. Uh, so he's Ella Keir, great baddie in the Crusade. And and also, and he's one of the Egyptians in the Dalek Master Plan. And then he's a guard in episode one of the invasion. And then doesn't doesn't have an awful lot to do here. But it's a, it's a key role. Um, uh, and... Uh, 
yeah, I mean, Camf- Camfield did use people over and over again. And it was interesting because the acting is always good in Camfield stuff, but he didn't necessarily go for drama school types. Uh, his, his, you know, he would quite often promote an extra. Um, uh, I think, was Randall a dancer? I don't know, but he was, he was South African, wasn't he? Uh, Walter Randall. I think he was a dancer at one point. Love, uh, I love the, uh, the, the one, the noise that, the that that the roar is given and also the cut from you know th- thwacking somebody on the head with a wrench to a nail being hit uh into a wall that is a very nice camfield touch i always feel john levine is is somehow is always gives a a, a better performance in a douglas camfield story i know that camfield helped john levine to overcome his uh uncertainty um i think john john would say himself he was sometimes quite intimidated by the experience of the thespians around him uh and i think uh, I, I think camfield made him feel at ease and does i think bring out the best of him so there's some great stuff in zygons as well um uh i mean i always love sergeant benton but but i i do think i do think john levine john john's performance does does vary sometimes um and i think and i think he's he's I don't know. I I get the impression he's much more relaxed when doing this stuff, and he and he flourishes as a result. He gets some nice comedy stuff. Uh, I I really like the dynamic. Um, Camfield, you d- didn't like the unit um, costumes either, so um, I guessing that's why Levine is in in sort of proper military stuff rather than this this stuff that they phase out in favour of proper military stuff because. You had special costumes designed, and then I think Barry Letts asked the military, didn't he, and said, "What what would they actually wear?" And the military said, "Well, they'd just wear, you know, normal military stuff." To be honest, uh, I like the idea of the wrench being red hot, because uh, uh, it's actually it's quite a slight story if you think about it. You know, it's a it's a, and I used to, I was, I'm sure the legend was back in the day it had been a four parter extended to a seven parter, and so the the alternative world stuff had been added like that but it wasn't quite like that it was commissioned as a as a seven parter and the the alternative world stuff was there but it was it was introduced to to make the story have a bit more to it as indeed were the monsters um i i shouldn't think this would be as even though the monsters are questionable i don't think this would be as well remembered if it was just about you know a tense drilling operation so that's producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix knowing what ingredients you needed to throw in to a storyline that they nonetheless liked. Um, here's Derek Newark. Last appeared in the very first Doctor Who story uh, as the caveman Czar. Uh, and this is his final appearance in Doctor Who. Uh, he had a, a fantastic career. He became a leading player at the National Theatre, part of bill bryden's company of what kevin mcnally describes as broad-bottomed actors uh but unfortunately that came with it uh, uh a propensity for hard and heavy drinking and that brought out some of derek newick's demons uh, as uh i've done a biography of him in one of my other podcasts in the podcast called too much information uh for the forest of fear uh and the story of the rise of Derek Newark, which then led to a plateau and sadly a, a fall. Uh, I mean, he got fantastic obituary in The Guardian that celebrated his 
talents and Harold Pinter even augmented that with his own uh, uh, positivity. Pinter was a great fan of the work of, of Derek Newark, but I think Derek was uh, could be hard work and alcohol didn't bring out the best in him. So, you know, he did have a good career, but dead at 65, having not been employed for the last five years of his life uh, either much. Uh, you know, at what expense a, a good career as a character actor, and of course different times where you could, where you could sink a load of drinks during a performance and and not be fired, uh, but uh, that would not be the case now. And of course, I mean at this this time at the BBC, it, there was a there was a BBC bar. People went to drink at lunchtime, didn't they? I mean it's a totally different times. Um, some would say, oh, yeah, but you produce the best work. In fact, I spoke to an actor at a, at a do, quite, quite a well-known TV face who'd been away from, the, from, from what he'd been doing and, 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 and had come back to do a bit. And, and I said, oh, how are you finding coming back? And he said, oh, well, you know, you used to be able to go to the bar and have a drink, but you're not allowed to anymore. And, you know, the work suffers. You go, well, I'm not sure it does. <laughs> Uh, and and if your main feeling about coming back into into a, 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 a TV series is that you're now not allowed to have a drink at lunchtime, I think a bit of recalibration is probably needed. Um, yes, I, I always find this a bit a little bit cringy where G G Greg Sutton undermines uh, Petra and uh, she has a go at him. But you're supposed to find it cringy. Greg is is in many ways the hero of this. Um, but, uh, he makes a burke of himself, uh, uh, and that's, that's actually quite nice for what happens later. And it's actually quite nice for Doctor Who, where women are often patronised and the show is not made to account for it. I think it very much is there. And I think Sheila Dunn does her cool riposte to Greg's catch casual sexism rather well. Um, I, so I like all of these characters. I think all of these characters are, uh, nicely done and i and i i i'm utterly convinced by stallman's testy patronizing attitude uh to to um sir keith uh and he's not a ranting madman he's 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 a testy prat uh, well there's uh, you know he's i, I because of the way that Pooley plays it, he you, you sort of sympathise with. You can see where he's coming from. He's not being an unreasonable... He's not been a Chief Robson from Fury from the Deep who's going, I just want to keep the thing switched on. Why? Because I do. Uh, and it's all a bit one note, even though I like Robson and I like Victor Madden. I, 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 find, I, I find Stallman a cut above um, the usual Doctor Who mad scientist um, and in the way that he's written and the way that he's played. Um... Uh, and and it's not a sort of predictable. Oh, he's going to start yelling by the end of episode one, and he'll be yelling even louder by episode seven. Um, it's it's more calculated than that, and it's more character based than that. Um, and Greg Sutton, I love because he's a hero, um, and and there's a real likability which makes the transformation of uh, Derek Newark in, into, a, by all accounts, a bit of a loudmouth sometimes when he was drunk, even sadder because he's, he's very likeable on screen. Um, 
Christopher Benjamin is likable on screen and off. I can attest to that. He's a very affable fellow. Um, and of course, a Doctor Who legend, thanks to Henry Gordon Jago. Um, Sir Keith Gold was, I think, originally called Sir Keith Mulvaney, and then Sir Keith Rose. Uh, I I do like... Pertwee's brilliant, isn't he? I think season seven Pertwee. And let's not forget, talking about... Who was I talking about being nervous in the studio? Oh, um, John Levine. John Pertwee had not done much drama in an electronic studio, if in fact any, prior to being Doctor Who. I know he'd done a couple of... I think he'd done a live Toad of Total or something, but that's not drama. And I, and I know that Sue Upton, who was production assistant on Doctor Who the Silurians, said that, uh, you know, he was very nervous during Silurians because he, he wasn't... Because that was... Because, of course, uh, Spearhead from Space was all done on film. And Pert, we'd done a lot of film, but doing drama on film is very different to doing it in an electronic studio where you've got a number of cameras... Uh, at once to 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 be you know to be conscious of and, and various other things david simeon there as the friendly private latimer who is introduced to be friendly for the sole purpose of when the doctor comes back a bit later uh, and it's a parallel world is unfriendly that's all the character is but that's fine and, and what a lovely actor to get for it david simeon who comes back uh, for episode one of the demons for one of the great one episode doctor who performances as alistair fergus i have an interview that I've done with David actually kicking around that I've not uh, found that I've not used yet. So, oh, I wonder if I should bring that out as a because he's always interviewed about the demons. I I talked to him about Inferno as well, and he's a lovely chap. Um, he was a great friend of Nigel Neal who wrote the Quatermass serials, which of course heavily influence uh, this season seven of Doctor Who. In fact, Terence Dix, the script editor, always sort of said that. Uh, Season 7 of Doctor Who was not really Doctor Who, it was Quatermass. And I have some sympathy with that because it's a bit more hard-boiled and less fantastical. I love Season 7 of, of Doctor Who. I, d I do think it's my favourite Pertwee season. But maybe because it's an anomaly and I like things that are a break from the norm. But of course, to have something that is a break from the norm, you have to have the norm with which to contrast it. So I'm aware that my contrary brain maybe goes well i like that because it's different yeah but if you didn't have a benchmark for the difference to be measured against it wouldn't be so different and would i like the pertwee era if it was all like this or do i like season seven because it's a glimpse of what could have been but i i think all the seven parters sustain their length um uh i, I yeah i just like the whole setup and i think pertwee is for somebody that hadn't done much drama in an electronic studio and for somebody who is a comedian and a comic actor uh i mean that natural elegance that he has and that natural authority that he has um and and but was often sort of talked of as an establishment figure but he ain't half a prick to the the, the annoying uh uh ministerial types and and so there is an, a sort of anarchist streak in him but he deploys it to, to undermine bullies rather than just be generally disruptive. Uh, you know, he he would still have dinner with the Queen, but if an equerry decided to pull his weight, push his weight about, that's when the Pertwee Doctor would uh, would jump into action. Which is fine. Ian Fairburn here. I, yes, Ian Fairburn is somebody who he was interviewed so many times. He was another sort of Douglas Camfield favourite and I, I actually had the chance to meet him and you know what? I collect autographs I collect interviews and I, I chatted to him but I, I wasn't sort of bowled over because 
he very gamely contributed to all of the DVDs and was interviewed quite a lot. So I was just like, oh, it's Ian Fairburn, yeah. And, and, and I think because he'd already been sort of acquired, as it were, I, I was less excited. And then, of course, he, he, he died sometime later. And I thought, well, well, why was I less excited? He was actually really generous with his time. So I should have... I, I did. I mean, I, I had a lovely time. You know, I chatted to him and, and, and think it's fine. But I, I, I wasn't as excited as I'd been if, say, somebody who'd never given an interview uh, was around that day. Uh, and that's almost like not rewarding Ian Fairbairn for being so kind and generous and being on all of the DVDs. But because of that, it was quite familiar to me. But now I look at that as a as a squandered opportunity. So don't underestimate people. I would say, um, I wasn't dismissive of him, but as I say, I just wasn't as. Uh, as excited as I as I would have been by so, but it is that is interesting, isn't it? About people hold, you know, keeping their powder dry or with withholding themselves. You know, I think we always think people who who give fewer interviews are somehow, you know, a cut above or a bit more mysterious or or they're by their nature harder to get hold of, um, which is why you know so I know some comedians who are very much in the public eye who very much limit. The, the amount of themselves that they give and actually it I think it does lengthen their shelf life which judging by the amount of podcasts I've said yes to I'm, I'm probably well out I'm probably in the va- I'm festering in the vacuum pack as we speak my, my, my I'm well and truly out of date uh, this is effective stuff done on film with a bit of Miralon uh, to, to have the doctor it's it's a nice seeding in because obviously the parallel world doesn't prop kick in properly until episode three. But and that's interesting because when I first started watching Inferno, you know, I assumed episodes one and two would just be sort of there to be got out of the way before the real sort of meet. Um, and episodes one and two are, the, I think, the only two studios that uh, Camfield, Douglas Camfield, the director, was properly in control of because um, he fell ill during the production. Um, uh, during the second studio block, I think uh, it was it was that early. So he, he, yeah, what we see in the studio for the first two episodes is him, and I know that he was slightly disappointed by Barry Letts's work on the later episodes, even though Letts I know followed his camera scripts, uh, and I think you can still get Camfield, you know, who is credited throughout, partially because he directed all of the film stuff, of course. Um, but it, but it, for a long time it was oh how much better would Inferno have been if Camfield had stayed for the whole thing? Well, it may have been slightly darker lit, but um, which probably would have helped. But I I don't think the 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 lack of Camfield is as much of a disaster as perhaps I was led to believe uh, when I first read about it. You know. Uh, um, The sound is excellent, isn't it? There's the alarms, there's the background noise. Uh, and there's a, it's a great character dynamic here. Um, uh, and and these first two episodes are actually terribly, terribly exciting. Um, uh, and the you know the move to the parallel world just up, ups the ante a bit and gives the story a different texture, but. Uh, I I, th- I think the first two episodes of, of this are are terrific. I'm really enjoying this, um, and I and I love this developing story between uh, Greg and Petra. It's you know in a world where everything goes horrible and in fact literally turns horrible in episodes three three to six. Uh, uh, 
you know, the, the, the spark of something between them shines like a beacon of hope. Uh, I love Greg and Petra. Um, and I hope they lived happily ever. Well, obviously in, in, uh, in, uh, in the parallel world, they, they don't get to live very long, but, uh, Uh, yeah, it's not your liver, it's your general disposition. He's great, but we and, and I really like Olaf Paul. This uh, sort of just finds the doctor to be really irritating, uh, but you can sort of see it from Stallman's point of view. Um, uh, again, without him appearing too irrational, and the smoke is great here, the lighting is nice. Uh, as I said, and Kate O'Mara, the Rani, was supposed to play. Uh, I know I've only just uh, was supposed to say Doctor Williams, or had been intended to play Doctor Williams. Um, now, something I noticed last time I watched this: this technician extra is is black, uh, and there's a female black technician extra, and I don't think they're in the parallel world as extras. The extras are different in the parallel world, and I wonder if that's a very subtle. Uh, and and clever piece of uh, you know background actor casting. So that's the end of episode one, which in my bootleg version was from Australia. And so at this point, you had an Australian uh, uh, continuity announcer going, uh, "Doctor will be back uh, tomorrow night uh, with the Green Man." And there's a Doctor Who exhibition in wherever Adelaide, uh, featuring lots of props from the series. But I don't know if you'll see a green man. And I, so I, I like the green man. Probably I'll do a podcast one day where I do a biography of the Australian continuity announcer uh, who uh, did the green man, uh, who said all about the green man. Um, it's terrific, terrific, uh, terrific opening installment. Uh, it's it's already got a lovely, lovely atmosphere. Um, I, I love all of the, 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 the atmospherics of, of the whole of... Um, season seven and i think and i think you know inferno is the acme of of uh that um what do i choose as my favorite thing i think i'm gonna have to say douglas camfield um just because i think as a director he really announces himself. Well, no, he doesn't announce himself because that sounds like it's too much of a flourish. I just think you immediately establish that you're in safe hands because more than safe hands, um, you're you're in the hands of a connoisseur. Um, no, a connoisseur is the wrong word. You're in that. You're in that. You're in. You're in the hands of uh, somebody who's more than capable. Somebody who is always going to make every single moment that could be hokey you know the bit where the guy touches the slime the bit where the the extra gets killed and all those sorts of bits he makes them count and he but he's it's not just about the way that he shoots it because he pays attention to the actors as well and the little things like john levine being you know being relaxed enough to be able to cut to to do his little bits of playful stuff and and the dynamics between the characters we often talk about camfield as an action director but no no he's he's a detailed meticulous director that just gets the best out of every moment and as as he won't be with us fully after episode two although his presence is felt for the whole story um, and also because I, I suspect uh, Douglas will be mentioned by Jeremy at some point. Now, if Jeremy chooses something in episode two, I can't then choose that in episodes three, four, five and six, seven. Whereas if I choose something now and Jeremy chooses it later, 
that counts in my favour. Them's the rules. Let's see what Jeremy liked about episode one of Inferno. Wow, that was exciting, huh? Uh, so what's my favourite thing about episode one? Um, you know, I wish I could say something sophisticated, like how well the script establishes the premise and all of the characters. You know, you get to know who each of them are and their relationships to each other. And we see their radically different positions on the central premise. And, um, you know, they're all really interesting and they're very round and they're vibrant. And, you know, they're kind of brilliantly differentiated from each other with their own points of view. But frankly, I just love the title cards. <laughs> lava. I mean, who doesn't love some lava? You know, it, it, it kind of gives it a special feeling, you know, to have its own title cards. I loved it when they did it in the 60s. Uh, I'm really sad that they kind of don't do it really after this. Um, and it's just great. It gives it this immediate apocalyptic feel. And I mean, who doesn't love lava? It's pretty awesome. Um, so that's, that's my favorite thing. So while you crack on to episode two, I'm just going to head back uh, outside to my backyard again because the scientists, they're saying that now um that they've pierced the crest there's like a like a slime or a, like an ooze coming out of the pit so i'm going to take a look at that but uh you know after episode two we'll come back and we'll see what my favorite thing is at that point see if you can guess it all right <laughs> oh he's great isn't he <laughs> oh the title cards i meant to talk about the title cards and i got distracted talking about bootleg videos oh if only one could script these things um, I will talk about the title cards at some point, so I won't uh, waste time now because I've got seven episodes to wax lyrical throughout. Um, but that is a good choice. The title cards are a good choice. I wonder if I would have chosen them at any point down the line because, of course, I have to choose a bonus thing at the end. So I've got to come up with eight things in all. Um, but that's a, but I can't choose the title cards now. Jeremy can still choose Douglas Camfield, but if he does, I've already chosen that, so I get a point for that. But for now, it's 1-0 to Jeremy, um, who is going to join me for all seven episodes of Inferno, and I hope that you will too, uh, and that I can manage to uh, keep you interested throughout seven episodes, and that I don't, <laughs> I don't become too much of a bore. Oh. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which was presented by me, Toby Haydoke, and featured by special guest Jeremy Raddick, who can be found on Twitter at Jeremy Raddick. These podcasts would not be possible without the generosity of patrons, who include Sidney Wilson, John Williams, Rich Wiggins, Kevin West, Peter Ware, Gavin Ware, Alistair Wallace, Gary Wales, John Turner, Sidney Trote, Paul Taylor Greaves, Adam Stone, Dave Stevens. David Spofforth, David Spencer, Richard Smith, Paul Shields, Tom Selinsky, Gavin Rymill, Darren Rule, Alex Rowan, Paula Reynolds, Peter Reed, Quarridors, Liam Price, John Pettigrew, Thomas Payne, Ken Patterson, Richard Patey, Phil Pascoe, Russell Parker, and Mark Trevor Owen. The music for this podcast is by Dave Gates, and the podcast artwork by Dylan Patterson. Well, if you become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoak, you don't just get the satisfaction of supporting a starving artist. You also uh, get these releases several months ahead 
and you get bonus and exclusive material. Tiers start at £3 a month, although you even get a 10% discount on that if you pay for a whole year in advance. There's also the Ko-fi option if you just want to uh, make the odd donation rather than signing up for a regular thing. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. Uh, any financial support is, of course, hugely appreciated and flattering and flabbergasting. But I also understand that not everybody has the means to do so. Uh, and I'm just grateful to you for listening. However, do you know what costs nothing? Going to your podcast outlet and giving me five stars. Yes, please. And perhaps a couple of positive lines if you enjoy what this is doing, because that makes my algorithms seem more attractive to passers-by. And I want to I wanna flash on my algorithms and lure them into my abode. So uh, if you could do that, I would be extremely grateful. But, you know, mostly, thanks for listening. Outside of the world of Doctor Who, I'm a stand-up comic and I do a regular comedy show in Manchester, England at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club every Tuesday from 8pm and that club was online for the whole of lockdown so we're going to still do that but that's going to be on the first Sunday of every month from August 2021 on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. That's an X and an S and then the word Malarkey. Excess Malarkey is on Twitter at Excess Malarkey as am I at Toby Haydock as are these podcasts at Haydock Podcasts. That's three Twitter handles in one sentence. Makes you seem rather like a rather needy podcaster. Well, yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs>